Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we welcome back to the co-pilot's chair, the professor, Ray Permi. Ray P., good to have you back, man. Great to be back, guys. Awesome. All right. <laughs> so on this episode, we're going to review Steely Dan's 1973 album, Countdown to Ecstasy. Ray P., what's your history with Steely Dan in this particular album? Steely Dan. Uh, well, it's a band that's music. They're, they were always kind of around in the ether. I'd heard Ricky, Don't Lose That Number, Peg, Reeling in the Years, Do It Again, countless times, but I never really listened to them. It kind of goes back in a circular way for me. I was a huge Zeppelin fan in junior and senior high school. That's the first band I really listened to. Heard the arrangements, the rhythm, the drums, the bass, everything, and delved into each song, and I still do. Zeppelin really opened up music for me. Um, from the, anything, I get into anything, I devour everything. I read anything that I can. And I came across a quote of Jimmy Page in a Led Zeppelin book, In Their Own Words, where he said that his favorite guitar solo was from Reeling in the Years. Mm. Of course, this was the early 80s, and there was no YouTube, no streaming. There wasn't even MTV at this point. This was before 81. And if you didn't own the album or the single, you couldn't just hear it anytime you wanted to. You had to try and catch it on the radio. Either way, I had to hear this guitar solo that Jimmy Page called his favorite. Eventually, I did hear it. It was good. It was nothing that blew my doors off or anything. I was already well, well, well versed in Eddie Van Halen and Reeling in the Years really didn't compare. Then Donald Fagan released The Nightfly with that stylistic video on MTV. You know, and then I didn't even know he made a comment about Brubeck, who I didn't even realize. Didn't matter. I loved the song. There was something about it, a certain type of nostalgia that was so appealing to me. And and I was only 15, 16 years old at this time. So I don't even know what I was thinking about with nostalgia, but I just remember feeling that. It was different from anything else. It wasn't the police. It wasn't Van Halen. I liked it and had no idea about the connection to Steely Dan or anything beyond just liking that song. And my friends hated it which is an important fact. They hated that song. They hated the video. I thought it was really just destined to be one of those quirky songs that you'd remember, remember 10, 20 years later and go, oh, yeah, that was a good song, kind of like back in high school thing. Um, I always really liked jazz, so it was another thing my friends hated. I was the only person that probably wasn't a member of the band that actually knew who jazz musicians were. I knew who Aaron Copeland was, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, and uh, I had heard Miles Davis kind of blew well before college, when everybody finds that one. Guilty um, as charged. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a great, though, but, you know. <laughs> I'm even later than that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it isn't for everyone, so, and I knew that, but I always thought jazz to me was always that kind of music that just best expressed thoughts and feelings musically not even not even with lyrics it's just all the jazz all my favorite jazz music is just the instruments steely dan's music to me is that bridge between the two so of course coming back to the columbia house i got citizen steely dan which was everything that they had recorded up until two against nature which i remember when that came out but i got all of their studio albums and citizen steely dan which was a four cd set Oh, can't beat that. Shoot. Yeah. yeah. Damn. I love everything that they put out. Just that simple. So, and then this album really didn't kind of resonate with me till about five years ago when I just put it on and, and it was blown away by it. And that's how I came to know Steely Dan. All right. Ray Z. 
Well, I think I might have been in either kindergarten or first grade. I can't remember what it was. But at the time, Hey 19 was released on the radio, and I just fucking hated it. <laughs> uh, There's something about Donald Fagan's voice that just really irritated the living shit out of me. So, like, I, at that point in my worldly age of seven or eight, wrote this band off. Like, oh, these guys, no, I'm not into this. I'm definitely more into Men Without Hats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I remember hearing Real in the Years on the radio, and then it, did, it didn't even occur to me that, you know, it was the same band until, you know, much, much later. I, like, listen to Rock 102 or one of those stations. And I was like, okay, so they got some good stuff. And I kind of came to, like, kind of like, you know, the hits, you know, that you get on classic rock radio. I think anybody who's listening to this show knows that I'm a big fan of Iconoclasts. And uh, Donald Fagan, I think, fits into that category. I had his guitar for the Practicing Musician. It came out in, like, 93 or 94. And every once in a while, that magazine would focus on a, on a, you know, a band you really wouldn't think they would, and they'd focused on Steely Dan. And they interviewed Donald Fagan, and he said he would do the interview, but he would only do it by passing back and forth index cards. Yeah, he's a nut job. <laughs> but um, but at the same time, I think it was like around that same time, ninety two or ninety three. I, I did start also listening to jazz, and um, I heard about this guy Horace Silver. And the interviewer says, like, you know, a lot of people compare your keyboard work to Horace Silver. And it's like, all right, so this guy definitely has, he he's comes from somewhere that's, you know, it's, you know he knows what the hell he's doing. And he's, he obviously impresses the jazz bows, so let's let's give him a chance. But truth be told, I never sat down up until last week and listened to a, a Steely Dan album in its entirety. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that for now. All right. I first heard Steely Dan when I was very young because my father had the first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. I remember looking at the Wild Album cover, and I know I heard the music quite a bit. It was a record my dad really liked. I don't think he had any other Steely Dan albums, so they kind of dropped off my radar as I got older. Though occasionally over the years, I'd hear one of their hits on the radio, and i think, oh yeah, those guys. Yeah, I remember them. They're pretty cool. Now we've got to cut to the late 90s. I remember I was driving somewhere, and I was in a bad mood. I was pissed off, bummed out about something. I can't even remember what it was exactly. But I do remember on that day, Reeling in the Years came on the radio, and I was like, holy shit, I haven't heard this in a while. I was grooving to it, man. And then on that day, I went out and got Can't Buy a Thrill on CD, and it just opened this nostalgic wave inside me, and a Dan fan was born. I checked out my Rolling Stone album guide, and I noticed that all the Steely Dan records that were out at the time got high ratings, so I just decided to get the albums in order. So probably by the next week, I had Countdown to Ecstasy in my hands. So here are some basic facts about this record, because facts and Wikipedia go together like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> Countdown to Ecstasy is the second studio album by American rock band Steely Dan, released in July 1973 on ABC Records. It was produced by Gary Katz and was recorded at Caribou Ranch in Nederland, Colorado, and at the Village Recorder in West Los Angeles, California. It reached number 35 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified gold by the RIAA. Next, here's the band's lineup card. We have Donald Fagan on acoustic and electric pianos, synthesizer, lead, and backing vocals. Walter Becker on electric bass, harmonica, and backing vocals. Denny Diaz on electric guitar. Jeff Skunk Baxter on electric and pedal steel guitars. Jim Hodder on drums, percussion, and backing vocals. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. Also, all tracks on the album were written by Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. 
Okay, let's dig into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We open up the record with Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, would you take me by the hand? Bodhisattva, would you take me by the hand? Can you show me the shine of your Japan? Sparkle of your China? Can you show me Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva? Ray P, what do you think of this? I imagine this song is playing on the radio when I pull into Arnold's on Happy Days. <laughs> while I'm looking to punch out Potsy. Yeah. Punch out Potsy? <laughs> what, what do you got against Anson oh, Williams? <laughs> he needed to be punched out badly. Sit on it. So, seriously, this is what Brian Setzer's Jump Driving Whale would sound like with better musicians. Mm. How the song starts with that pulsating beat and the guitar duo. Look at me once, look at me twice, look at me again, there's going to be a fight. This is a swinging song, and that's before the hand claps. Lyrically, they're mocking the West Coast, and in particular, Los Angeles' beautiful people's view of Eastern religion, taking a few thousand years of of that religion and condensing it into a Mick religion. Uh, Fagan said it was a sort of parody on the way Western people look at, at religion, sort of oversimplifying it. We thought it was rather amusing, although most people didn't get it. And that Danny Diaz solo is so tasty. And then he goes off into that Fagan whirling call and response with the skunk solo, who always made me laugh because he looks like he would fit right in the Muppets band. <laughs> Floyd. He does look he like does, him. Yeah, he does look like Floyd. Probably, probably his inspiration. Probably. <laughs> right? I mean, so, and, and while that's all going on, you hear Becker just going off on the bass. Um, I could easily imagine some horns for some of the guitar parts. That this sarcastic social commentary in a swing style disguised as a rock song, this is one way to kick off an album. It just is always a great toe-tapping tune, and every time I listen to the song, I have to hit repeat at least once. Nice. Ray Z. Well, great song. It reminds me of um, when I used to hang out at Dunkin' Donuts late at night. There was this guy, Roger, who used to run the gas station. And me and his cat banjo would drive around smoking pot, and uh, <laughs> this song came on. Like, and he used to be like the per- he could like mimic any singer on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, first he had me doubled over laughing because he was doing Michael McDonald's part for Peg, but then he kind of started doing <laughs> Donald Fagan stuff for this. But that's another story for another time. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of great. It starts out with just kind of with the snare on two and four, and then you get power chords, which if you just expose the song for the first time, it's a little bit deceptive. You don't you don't think you're going to get like you know anything with like more of a jazz influence you think you're just gonna get some like you know thin lizzie kind of a rocker then you get like this really kind of syncopated guitar- piano figure with really jazzy chords and then you got that musical head the, the guitar harmony which doesn't really sound like thin lizzie but i mean it is a guitar harmony but it, but the intervals sound a little jazzier than like your typical thin lizzie like stacked thirds which is cool i'm not knocking stacked thirds for harmonies because that's awesome but um, it just it's just out there and i like that um, and, then, and Ray, man, the 50s fucking vibe, you totally nailed that. That's like, that's immediately what I think. I mean, these guys, of course, yeah. they're, they're definite jazz bows, but I mean, I'm sure a lot of these guys came out of the 1950s rock and roll stuff that got them to where they were. So it's cool. It's like a little homage to it, but, you know, with, you know, really snarky kind of lyrics, which I like. It's kind of funny because I've sat down and tried to figure this out for years. It's like, it's not a typical 12-bar blues. It starts out like a 12-bar blues, but I actually count it as 16-bar blues. All right. Uh, well, with the exception, they mess around with a little bit during the solo sections, but that's 
I can see them taking that from their jazz because jazz is always taking like the basic concept of blues and fucking with it. Yeah. So that definitely fits into like their kind of mode of doing things. Um, then when it gets to the triplet interchange between the keyboard and the guitarist, that's just fucking. Man. Yeah. See, Roger was the, the the guy was getting high with. It was like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's fucking funny as shit. And every time I hear that part, I just laugh my ass off. It's cool because um, there is an interplay between both guitarists and the keyboards. Because if you listen really close on the left-hand channel, you can hear the rhythm guitar just as clear as you can hear like the, the echoing triplets by the other guitarist. And then we kind of return to the beginning, where they kind of start the, the verse sections over again. And I like the way Donald Fagan says, look out, before they kind of kick into the kind of final kickoff. Mm-hmm. And then the guitar solo, is basically just the, guitar, the, the turnaround of that 16-bar blues just kind of hangs on there for, a, for quite a while. But they add the synths in the background, which kind of build tension. And I think that's where I first noticed the synths in the back really coming in. And this is like 73, so I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other probably Krautrock bands playing around with synthesizers, but I don't know of too many, barring maybe like some Floyd stuff. I don't know. I'm not aware of too many bands messing with like synth sounds like that at this time period. Yeah. I mean, if you guys might... The Beatles. Okay, okay. The The Beatles did. Okay. All right. Well then, yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. (laughs) So immediately we're given a great example of Steely Dan's unique mix of jazz, pop, and rock. It's up-tempo, beginning with a constant steady beat and a catchy guitar lick, and the production is pristine with all the instruments having clear separation, something Steely Dan records are known for. The verses, as we were saying, have that 50s rock and roll vibe to them. The guitar nicks Chuck Berry's Maybelline. I mean, it sounds just like it. And the rhythm section follows that vibe. Donald Fagan's vocals are very distinctive. His voice doesn't have a wide range, and it's kind of in the middle register, but he knows how to accent a lyric like a jazz singer, and you almost never hear him reach for a bum note. I dig his voice. It is kind of an acquired taste, but I've always loved it. The first break is a lengthy guitar solo and shows flashes of jazzy runs, which leads to a call and response section, like we were saying, between the guitar and Donald's keyboards and a cool, melodic, harmonized guitar passage to take us back to the verse. There's no chorus per se, but the lines, the shine of your Japan, the sparkle of your China, is a good refrain. As the track heads to the finish, we get some more hot guitar soloing, along with some sweet, jazzy drum fills by Jim Hodder. Lyrically, it's a satire of the Western world's fascination with Eastern religion and philosophy, selling off or renouncing one's possessions in order to find enlightenment. In Buddhism, a bodhisattva is a person on the path towards Buddhahood. On the early Steely Dan albums, the lyrics often took a snarky, sardonic attitude towards its subject matter, and this is a good example of that. It didn't take long for this album to grab me. I'm already on board. The next track is Razor Boy. Still have a song to sing When the razor boy comes And takes your fancy things away Will you still be singing it On that cold and windy day You know that the coming Is so close at hand You feel alright I guess only Ray P, your thoughts. What a downshift from the first song. A bossa nova or samba style beat with a xylophone. Every time I hear this, I feel like I just walked into a cocktail party hosted by Benjamin Braddock's parents from The Graduate. 
and, and you kind of get that sneaking suspicion that some of the party goers are going to toss their keys into a hat later after most of the people are gone. Oh, yeah. I love this song. It's just it's just cool jazz and Brazilian beats, along with some intentionally veiled lyrics about an uncertain but definite doom that is about to strike. To me, it sounds like an impending divorce. And for a woman in 1973, a divorce was really devastating. Uh, the pedal steel guitar solo is dreamy, short but impactful. I got this quote from this book that I just found about. It's called Reeling in the Years. An elliptical address to a woman who seems to be stealing herself for some sort of final showdown, left purposely unclear. The undercurrent of menace adds a friction of unease to a tune that would otherwise be skirting the edges of easy listening. This is Yacht Rock at its best. I distinctly remember hearing this, the one-two punch of the first song in this, and going, who is this band? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Usually these type of drastic stylistic fluctuations fall flat on their face to me. But by the time this song is over, I almost had forgotten about Bodhisattva. And the music has just kind of grabbed me, and my curiosity was piqued for the next song. It's just incredible. These guys have some serious chops. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Ray Z. Oh, it's kind of funny because you were thinking The Graduate. I was thinking of that scene in The Exorcist where the uh, mother's having like a dinner party downstairs, and uh, it's the part where Reagan McNeil comes downstairs, and she looks at the astronaut, and she's like, you're going to die up there. It just pisses all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> that movie you know scared I mean? the is... shit out of me. I never. I only watched it like once at like three in the morning sometime in the 80s when cable first came out. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forced myself to watch it about a dozen times. I don't know why. I mean, the first time I saw it, I like had to shut it off and I love like, that wait till the morning and then watch it. Because, you know, monsters don't come out in the morning. That, that's, <laughs> that's a known fact. Or if you have your radio on late at night. Um, this song, however, is the dog's balls. It's fucking awesome. Is it, is it a xylophone vibes or maroon? It's a, it's a vibraphone. It's a vibraphone? Yeah. Okay. Man, it's, uh, that's what gets Which is back. basically a wooden xylophone. That's yeah. really what a vibraphone is. Totally get it. Total cocktail yeah. hour kind of yeah. feel, which I'm all, always down with. Yep. And you got some great percussion going on. Jim, there was Jim Hodder and there was another guy who did percussion too, right? Yes. Okay. Well, whoever's yep. doing it is Victor awesome. Feldman. Okay. Well, yep. they layered it nicely, yep. I thought. And what, what is there's a kind of a weird drum that comes on the end of the fork. That kind of pops up every once in a while. Is that a conga or some fucking something. thing? Something. There's other percussion cool. going on. But they've used that before, like on, um, what the hell was the song? It's not Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Do It Again. Do It Again. Yeah, yes. yeah. And yeah. I always love it in that song, yeah. too. So I have no problem revisiting that. I think it's a nice effect of the song. Then when it gets to the chorus, you got that triangle in the background, which is good. This is like total cocktail hour <laughs> stuff. And, and, and they've got me sold at this point. And I got to tell you, Jeff Baxter is a fucking talented motherfucker, and his pedal steel work on the song just adds a completely new dimension to it. Um, outside, like, kind of brings the fucking honky tonk into the fucking <laughs> yeah. into the swanky Manhattan party. Right. So this song is aces, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this has got a light jazzy feel with the double bass played by famed jazz bassist Ray Brown and the vibraphone by English jazz musician Victor Feldman. Steely Dan were always able to get the best musicians to play on their records, though they were also known for being studio perfectionists and keeping tight control of the music. There's Latin percussion, and there's a vague Latin groove overall to this track. The piano is also up front, and there's pedal steel guitar played by Jeff Skunk Baxter that comes forward in the chorus and gets a short solo spot. And this song shows how Steely Dan were the masters of the catchy, melodic chorus. It'll easily get stuck in your head. I love the way this band composes vocal melodies, period. 
The lyrics are pretty obscure. I think your explanation is probably better than mine, Ray P. Mine, I thought it was like another criticism of Western materialism, how so much value is given to one's possessions, and the narrator wonders how that person would function if those possessions were suddenly gone or taken away. And I love this track, too. The following track is The Boston Rag. AP, let's have it. Another curveball song. Slower pace, and the lyrics are a little more straightforward. Or are they? Lyrically, it's a nostalgic look back on Walter's early drug use in the streets of Bayside, New York, where Becker grew up in 1965, and the peeps he hung out with, Lonnie, the badass of the group, and his apparent overdose. Lonnie swept the bathroom, and he swallowed up all he found. It was 48 hours till Lonnie came around. He talks about Lady Bayside, who is some chick he liked. Um, and then I read in the book from Brian Sweet, uh, You Were Lady Bayside was a community in Queens where Becker once lived and where he formed one of his first rock and roll bands. He included it for no other reason than he liked the sound of it in the song. Just as uh, Fagan's vocal vocals come in and the song features some very crisp Stairway to Heaven-esque acoustic guitar from Ben Benet. Fagan's roommate at Baird, strangely enough, Youngie, I don't even know who the, how to say that, has never been to Boston, but Becker later commented, the nice thing about the Boston rag is that it took place in New York. That I have, They're just being assholes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure about what the Boston rag is. At first I thought it was about a defunct newspaper because, you know, a rag. And then when I read a little bit about the title and read a little bit about the lyrics, I was kind of guessing it was slang for a pill or a drug strain that is no longer available, some sort of local colloquialism. The song, for me, musically really plods along until that piano vamp and the and that nice guitar moaning and then that dirty ripping guitar solo that with that distorted tone is so tasty. And that really turns the whole song around for me. That's it. All right, Ray Z. One of my favorites on this album. Um, you got a really cool melody played on guitar and keyboard. And I was listening to it. I mean, were these guys in Zappa aware of each other? Because like, I hear some little things where you think... They were. Like, yeah, and yeah. how was their take? Was it not uh, favorable? or They kind of dug at each other, you know what I mean? Oh, they, they, yeah. You know what I mean, they weren't friends. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they were not like going to bowling parties yeah, together or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, there's a couple little, like... Zappa things I hear on there that I, I, I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, you got this badass uh, electric guitar figure, which kind of almost reminds me of like a, and it sounds nothing like this, but the, some of the, the legato parts of the, the, the electric guitar piece almost reminds me of like Up the Bend by CCR that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, I love the shit out of it too. Don't get me wrong. It's really good. Um, then when it gets to the verse sessions, you got Fagan and the, uh, our, Arpeggiated acoustic guitar. Now, who was the guy who played that? Is it Ben Benet? Yeah. I love that shit, yeah. man. I was wondering yeah. about that. At first, I said Jenny Diaz doing it, but okay, so Ben, I like that part of the song as well. Yep. And then the chorus gets like a little bit heavier with like a distorted kind of droning guitar parts. 
And Ray, the part that really kicks it for me is, I think you kind of mentioned it too, is that like piano, we have that dun, 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 yeah. like a, I don't know if it's a tango or whatever. Like a tango. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's like, what it made me think of. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And you get those cool ass volume swells, a really great fucking guitar solo. And um, the, the end is a nice fade out, but it doesn't sound like we couldn't find anything else to do to end it. You know, it doesn't sound like, <laughs> yeah, it's, fuck it. It, well, it should, sounds like an unfinished song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I like the fade out on this. So Yeah. This starts off like a jazzy intro with the guitars and keyboards interweaving and some fluid bass work from Walter Becker. And then it settles into a moody mid-tempo groove with a start and stop bass line and a cool lazy guitar like you just you did it better than I could do it. <laughs> ben Benet is on acoustic guitar strumming underneath the verses while Donald's piano and vocals are front and center. The vocal melody is slow, meandering and memorable. The chorus stays in the same tempo, but there's more urgency in the vocals, and again, so fucking catchy. Then we get that breakdown section with a marching rhythm that reminds me of a tango or like the Doors 5 to 1, mm. complete with guitar volume swells that lead straight to a solo that also somewhat has that Doors feel. I don't think they was like influenced mm. by the Doors per se, right. but I, I, you know, I have Doors on the brain. You know, what am I going <laughs> to say? Out of the breakdown, we go into a few chorus sections to wrap it all up. These lyrics are too obscure for me to decipher. I think you explained them very well, Ray P. For me, I, I thought it was some kind of conflict between the narrator, his girl Lady Bayside, and Lonnie the drug kingpin who seems to have her in his clutches. Or maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't care. The lyrics still set the darkened mood and are effective. It's another winner, folks. Well, I know that it's kind of autobiographical for Becker because he grew up in a really shitty home. He had a really crap childhood. And that's, I mean, he did, he pretty much did drugs the whole time. And that's part of it is why he's no longer with us. So the next track is Your Gold Teeth. You know you have to pay it all. You pay today or pay tomorrow. You fasten up your beat again. Then you try to tie me down. Do you work it out? P, what do you say? I love how this song starts with those dissonant keyboard runs that come in so hot and then they change key or octave and they kind of fade into the background, just swirling around there throughout the first verse before the breakdown bridge. The music is so damn good. It's just smoky and smooth. And that restrained guitar solo is just damn. It's better than anything that you hear in a Holiday Inn lounge. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> lyrically, it's about a fast talking chick who's on the make gold teeth for according to the urban dictionary are dice. But I don't know if if that's what they're referring to here, but it seems like you throw out your gold teeth and kind of take the chance. Their lyrics are, are nuts. So tobacco, they grow in Peking in the year of the locust. You'll see a sad thing. Even Kathy Barbarian knows there's one reward she can't sing. Kathy Barbarian was an American opera singer and avant-garde vocalist from 1925 to 1983 is how long she lived. She was renowned for her chameleon-like vocal style, typified by a rendition of Luciano, oh, I can't even say what it is, which is improvisational piece consisting of sighing, crying, laughing, moaning, groaning, and stammering. Damn. So she must have been a real fun chick to have around. 
<laughs> this, this, it's about this chick that's a chameleon that can trap a man through her fast talking and sexual prowess. And by sexual prowess, I'm thinking she's a, some sort of dominatrix, which with this band would completely fit with their lyrics. <laughs> and, but there's one guy that she just can't she can't rope in. And that, is that a Fender Rhodes piano solo that I hear in this? Sounds like it's it like to me, yeah. Because man, just before that second guitar solo, and the second guitar solo itself is just man, that's jaw dropping stuff straight out of Mad Men. <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the the end, which really got me on this one, uh, where he talks about there ain't nothing in Chicago for a monkey woman to do, is a reference to the monkey in Portnoy's Complaint, a novel by Philip Roth. Oh, okay. oh man! This is this is a novel that was banned everywhere. <laughs> so, it's a one of the characters is a woman who used sex and head games to lock her man down, but she's not that good. The verse about her and Peking and Kathy and Barbarian saying that even the best know there's some things you can't pull off. This just this song is is hypnotic to me. So another song that once again I hit repeat a couple of times. All right. Ray Z. So not only are they great musicians and arrangers, the motherfuckers are highly literate too. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. oh God! Yeah. Oh yeah! <laughs> no, I, I respect that. I really respect that. I hate it, but I also really respect <laughs> it. Um, but I love this song as well. Um, you got kind of a syncopated guitar figure. It's with a call and response with the electric piano, and I love electric piano. And then this weird ass angular almost atonal kind of a melody which i think fucking sucks you right in right off the bat you got a little bit of smattering of some organ work in the back like i think it's like the 59 second mark right around the chorus and you get these like sugarloaf kind of like guitar bends almost remind me of green light lady <laughs> <laughs> after that one thing then you got some great bluesy guitar work right after the chorus Fagin is i didn't realize this till now except for having read that article in guitar for the pack the musician Fagin really is a decent fucking keyboardist, man. Yeah, he, yeah. He's no slouch. Um, he gets a nice little, like, the Fender Rhodes solo that goes on there that uh, Ray P. had already mentioned. And then I, I'm assuming that that's Skunk Baxter doing the guitar solo for some reason. Um, I think it the is. Three, the 3 minute 44 second mark. And this guy was just a beast. And then the song kind of gets a little bit more frenetic towards the 6 minute mark with, like, a lot, like, the tempos need to pick up a little bit or they just like you know double up a little with like with more percussion in the background which turns it almost into like a 70s cop chase scene or at least i could hear like a chase scene in like a casino and something like that like 1972 yeah. with huggy bear running out of <laughs> the <laughs> atlantic city somewhere waiting for starsky and hutch to pick him up man and i'm all for that shit you know wide lapel jackets big wide ties and sideburns that's if i could grow hair that's what i would do so that's my take on your gold teeth this song right. is a shiznit Oh, this one really brings the jazz. Steely Dan was so good at fusing the jazz to the rock. I mean, other artists like Joni Mitchell and Joe Jackson did this kind of thing successfully too, but man, the Dan had to plan. They took the brill-building, Tin Pan Alley approach to songwriting. They took it out further. They expanded on the possibilities, felt the influence, but didn't carbon copy the sound. They added on to it. This song just has groove, son. The Latin percussion is back, and Donald's on the electric piano, and it sounds so smooth. The guitars are clean and frame the music while the bass is just bopping away down there. 
After the first bridge, there's a quick-fingered, jazzy solo on the electric piano, followed by a guitar solo that hits the right notes. Then a return to the bridge and last stanza that rolls right into the final stretch, where the percussion picks up steam, one of the guitars goes into a funk strumming pattern, and the electric piano goes into overdrive and some fast, flashy runs as the track gains serious momentum into the fade-out. My interpretation of the lyrics is it's about a gold digger woman or possibly a prostitute who hangs around the casino trying to pick up a rich sugar daddy. Her fortune is her roving eye, her mouth and legs, her gift for the runaround. Torture is the main attraction. Kind of reminds me of the Sharon Stone character in the movie Casino. Oh, yeah. That's what I picture when I hear this song. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. This yeah. track is not a favorite of mine, but still it's so solid I cannot speak ill of it. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Showbiz Kids. Well, I've been around the world And I've been in the Washington Zoo And in all my travels as the facts unravel I found this to be true While the poor people sleep beneath the shade on the light While the poor people sleep and all the stars come out at night While the poor people sleep beneath the shade on the light While the poor people sleep and all the stars come out at night Ray P, you like this one? Oh, I love this song. Rick Derringer for Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. <laughs> Big guest spots on this with some, some really gritty guitar or slide guitar. And that snarling riff that starts the song and plays throughout is just so tasty. Once again, xylophone, vibraphone accents with the background singers. Go to Las Vegas. Go to Las Wages. And that's, Las Wages. Yeah, that's a play on what Lenny Bruce used to do when he would mispronounce things to try and come up with a double entendre. Lyrically, the song is about class envy. It's got one of my favorite lyrical twists of phrase. I've been around the world, and I've been in the Washington Zoo, and in all my travels as the facts unravel, I find this to be true. That is my favorite <laughs> lyric, period. <laughs> to me, the phrase before is, after closing time at the Guernsey Fair, I detect that El Supremo in a room at the top of the stairs seems like some sort of reference to something like an Illuminati or a shadow group that is in control and keeping most of the population down, except for those who have won life's lottery, the rich kids, the showbiz kids. Las Vegas, Las Wages speaks to the underlying belief that gambling of any sort will provide a financial boost, but it's really a lie and will only result in more losses than gains. With the, while the poor people sleep in with the shade on the light, the poor people sleep in and the stars come out at night. It's just, you know, working stiffs are all asleep. People that really have to work for everything and the, the beautiful rich people come out and shine at night because working is something they just don't have to do. The second verse is unusually clear for Steely Dan. They got the house on the corner with the rug inside, a big, nice house filled with nice things. They got the booze they need, all that money can buy. That's pretty self-explanatory. They got the shapely bodies, and damn it, not only do they have everything, but they're in great shape physically. <laughs> and then they got the Steely Dan t-shirt, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, you heard that, and you had to get a Steely Dan t-shirt, and you can't get them unless you go to the concerts. They don't sell them online. Not, not their official ones, which is, I just love that line. It's a dig at the band's old, highbrow, weird appeal that these lazy rich kids actually get Steely Dan's music, although the rest of the people usually don't. And for the coupe de gras, they're outrageous. And the coupe de gras means it's a death blow to the end of the suffering of a severely wounded person. 
they live outrageous lives, which just piss people off. <laughs> but the guitar solo on this one, it burns the house down. It pretty much sums everything after that, that, you know, these are the show kids, show business kids making movies of themselves. And they don't give a fuck about anybody else. <laughs> the interesting thing that I kept going back to and trying to hear on this was the scream at the beginning of the coda. The two voices comprising of the closing were those of Warren Wallace and, a, and another member of the road crew, John Famular, with David Palmer, their original singer, already on the way out and Fagan unwilling to really sing lead. Um, they're asking, hey, is this the band that's looking for a lead singer? And immediately after that, Famlar, who's cupping his hands over his mouth, does his best imitation of a commercial airline pilot, clicking on the microphone saying, this is your captain speaking. <laughs> it's just, it's pretty, I was, I thought it was from a movie when I first heard it. And I kept thinking, what is that? What is that? And I looked it up and I couldn't find it forever. And then I found it in that book by Brian Sweet. Once again, another song I hit repeat at. And incidentally, Ricky Lee Jones of, of Chucky's in Love, she does a pretty beatnicky cover of this. It's a little bit different, but it's worth a listen. That's all I got. Does she have a Steely Dan t-shirt? <laughs> I'm sure she's got a lot of Steely Dan. She probably Dan's. does. does probably. <laughs> I'm sure she's probably got a Steely Dan 3 from Yokohama. <laughs> really? Ray Z. Um, well, I, part of the process of me listening to this album, um, it's like every day I listen to it like at least once. Um, a couple of times, there's a couple of days I did it twice in a row. And I really liked the song the first time I heard it. But uh, I got to tell you, like after a while, I, I just... It's not that I I hate it. I mean, it's still better than there are a lot of the direct that's out there on the airwaves. But I gotta say, this is Ray's unimpressed musical pick. What? What? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But, <laughs> what good, I, I damn near killed him by saying that. Are we being Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of like the John Lee Hooker's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, like, the John Lee Hooker endless boogie kind of a thing, but this just keeps going. <laughs> fucking going and going and going with lost wages and lost wages. Go to lost wages. And there's just, like, not a whole lot of variation in it. And like I said, it's, it's not... It's one chord, right? Yeah, it just, like I said, it's the John Lee Hooker endless yeah. boogie. Yeah. But not nearly as interesting. But yeah, you guys are coming at it for more. The, the lyrical content, I'm sure there's more to it that I'm giving it credit for. Um, yeah, and there's some p- parts that even, yeah, I chuckle that. But yeah, I don't hate it. It's just, it doesn't really grab me in any particular way. I will say this, though. I think Rick Derringer's slide playing is fucking gnarly as fuck. And that's that's really it, man. Uh, who knows? Maybe a couple of years from now, I'll come back and listen to it and change my mind completely. But this is something that just seemed kind of filler to me. This is my favorite track on the album, you <laughs> dick. <laughs> it comes on with slide guitar courtesy of Rick Derringer. It transitions into a swampy groove that basically rides one chord, like you said, a vamp, and pours all its energy into the rhythm. There's no progression and it almost flies in the face of everything I said I like about this band. It's extraordinarily simple for a Steely Dan cut. The vocals are what really makes this, from the lost wages backing vocals to the rhythmic cadence in the chorus vocals. Despite the track's limitations, it's still catchy as tuberculosis. There are subtle sonic additions like well-placed hand claps, Victor Feldman on marimba, and other percussive instruments, but it's the bass and piano that hold it all together. They're the ones that's doing that vamp that you're talking about. 
There's a slide guitar solo as well as a distorted harmonica solo that, like everything else in this tune, is in service to the groove. The vocals are a snide critique of Hollywood showbiz rich people types who are shallow, self-centered, don't give a fuck about anybody else, and feel they're above the poor, working-class people. They got everything money can buy and maintain their shapely bodies while wearing their steely dandy shirts. Donald Fagan said that Lost Wages is a nickname for Las Vegas. The Dan had a biting, satirical sense of humor. I hope when I grow up I can get my own Steely Dan t-shirt. I got four. (laughs) You dick! (laughs) This was the first single from the album that reached number 61 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And more often than not, it was played unedited on the radio. Somehow they snuck the F word by the censors. Good on them. (laughs) The following track is My Old School. I was smoking with the boys upstairs when I heard about the whole affair. I said, Whoa, no, William and Mary won't do now. Well, I did not think the girl could be so cruel. And I'm never going back to my. Ray P, go back to your old school. Oh, no. Guadalajara won't do. (laughs) (laughs) This song is infectious. It's loosely based on an incident where Fagan's girlfriend was swept up in a prostitution raid after the 35 sweet goodbyes after they had sex before he left for college. It was still September when your daddy was quite surprised to find you with the working girls in the county jail. And, of course, Fagan was busy at school because he was smoking with the boys upstairs when he heard about the whole affair. Becker and Fagan also got into some trouble for smoking pot at Baird College, where they were at, in Annandale, somehow related to a sting operation spearheaded by the Annandale District Attorney, Mr. G. Gordon Liddy. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. That G. Gordon Liddy that served some time for Watergate, hence the lyric. Daddy G. (laughs) Tried to warn you about Chino and Daddy G. They they both (laughs) left the school, and they're never going back to their old school. Uh, an interesting part that where they talk about when California tumbles into the sea, it was because of the on the wall in the village recorder building in Santa Monica, there was a painting in different shades of blue depicting an earthquake with a hefty piece of the freeway falling into the Pacific. And Beck, Becker and Fagan used the mural as an inspiration for that line. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> the lyrics paint a pretty straightforward picture, and I'm always compelled to sing along with Oh No, Guadalajara, or William and Mary Won't Do. But the song really draws me in by that guitar solos. The solo was played on a guitar that Jeff Baxter had built by himself and, according to the man, was finished merely three hours prior to recording that solo. Once again, this is another song that I'll hit repeat on over and over. All right. Ray Z. I bet you there's some credence to that rumor because, I mean, the guy's got, like, a de- contract with the Department of Defense for, like, what, weird, like, fucking math and sound oh, shit yeah. like that. So he, he's no slouch. He, he's a ballistic forensic scientist. Mm. Yeah. He's, like, one of the world's best ones. So he, he's, like, a, America's answer to, like, Brian May, except just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he probably could pull it off. That makes sense. Um, holy shit, do I love this song. It's got, like, an almost like an... Like a 60s era R&B Motown feel, especially with those rhythmic guitar chanks. I fucking love I, I love that sound. It's got a great piano intro. And right after the chorus, we get a guitar solo, which is really, if you look at back in like the era of late 60s, early 70s, blues rock, like long sustained notes and bends, 
this is more the equivalent of a guitar mumble. Like, mm. which is cool. I think it's really cool. I mean, there's a really tasty little licks going on there, but this isn't like, you know, Jimmy Page, like trying to solo for like, you know, Days and Confused or like, this isn't like Jeff Beck style work. They're like concise little musical phrases with that like great horn section in the background. And I could, that's, that's something I could just listen to all day. And I did actually like, of all the songs on this album, this is probably what I went back to the most. And Jim Hodder's got some really nice work on this, especially during the extended guitar solo section. So I had like a new appreciation for a new appreciation for the stuff that Jim Hodder was doing. Back to the jazz rock. This has the jazzy drums, rollicking piano, the rock guitars, and an all-star list of jazz saxophone players. Ernie Watts, Johnny Rotella, Lanny Morgan, and Bill Perkins, who add some honking sax lines that have a 50s, early 60s R&B flavor to them. There are numerous backing vocalists that also supply that 50s doo-wop feel. Steely Dan could tap almost any style for its influences. Skunk Baxter gets to trade off solos with the horns, and the backing music underneath is a start and stop rhythm that, as always, with this band will burrow into your brain. The lyrics reference an actual incident, which the professor explained ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into it. The bitterness that Donald Fagan felt about this incident is reflected in the lyrics, yet the vocals still come across as tuneful and catchy. I dig this one too, and it's the second single from the record that reached number 63 on the Billboard Hot 100. And as an aside, Dorothy White, the girlfriend who is referred to in this song, painted the cover art for this album. Oh, no shit. The penultimate track is Pearl of the Quarter. AP, what do you say? Well, this is a sleepy, dreamy song with one of the catchiest lyrical hooks ever, and it perfectly captures New Orleans. The lyrical hook is singing Voulez, 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 Yeah. At, at first, this song seems like a throwaway filler, but if you listen closely to the band and that steely guitar, there's more going on than meets the ear. The song is about a lonely traveling guy that is in love with a prostitute named Louise, from New Orleans, who likes to sing "Voulez Vous," which translate is translates to "Do you want to?" <laughs> want to what? Part cheesy. Do you want to? <laughs> so, it may not be the strongest song, especially on this side of the album, but it's not a throwaway filler track by any means. And every time this comes on, who's not singing right along with them? Mm. You know, right on. So, and I've never found red beans and rice for a quarter in New Orleans. Damn, man, you stole that from me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, You're stealing all the shit I want to say, Ray <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Look how that much going on. With it, so. That's all I got. All right. Ray Z. <laughs> wow. This song is really awesome. Um, I think a lot of it's got to go to, to Skunk Baxter on the uh, pedal steel work on it. It's just great. Oh, yeah. It's just it's a great arrangement in the intro. And it's kind of cool because in the verse section, it almost sounds like kind of wistful and happy. But by the time you get to the voulez, 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 vous part, it kind of gets a little bit darker and goes back to those minor chords. 
And that's really what I have. I, I, I don't think I'm going to do this song any more justice. <laughs> the song is fucking great. Ah, a song about a New Orleans hooker. This gets the albumatic seal of approval just by default. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this has a melancholy, laid-back rhythm with tons of pedal steel guitar up front in the mix that provides some sympathetic support to this unusual love story. There's also acoustic guitar and, as always, Donald's piano carrying the weight of the tune. Jim Hodder's drums are a highlight as well. He's not just playing the beat. He gets off some nice fills that act as connective tissue for the song, and yet they keep the groove contained. So Don, or the narrator, falls in love with Louise the hooker and her Cajun smile. He wishes she would give up the life and settle down with him. He appears to win her over, and she says she'll be on her way. I dig the voulez, 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 voulez vocal hook, and hey, red beans and rice for a quarter, can't beat it. I had to say it. <laughs> I gotta get me down to Nolens. Uh, there's a romanticized feel to this track, and I like it. And that brings us to the final track, King of the World. AP, hit us. What a richly textured song that for the first few thousand listens, I paid no attention to the lyrics at all beyond a few fragments here and there. The keyboards, the synths, the interplay with the guitars and the time changes just grabbed my attention every time. The song itself is about a survivor of a nuclear holocaust reaching out on an old ham radio. They said that it was inspired by a 1962 film, Panic at Year Zero, with, with about typical devastation, like what you do at the end of the world, the sense of doom is overwhelming. And the film focused on a family on a fishing trip in the mountains when Los Angeles was blasted by a nuclear attack. The song examines the behavior and predicament of a survivor after a nuclear attack and asks whether he would be better off dead anyway. I don't know how you can dislike this song. Mm. <laughs> Every time I hear this, this is multiple times I repeat this one constantly. Um, it's an it's just a great ending on a very interesting musical journey that this album is. And by the time I get to this song, I've already forgotten about Bodhisattva. Razzy, what do you think? It's kind of funny because this is like the opposite of Showbiz Kids for me, where like Showbiz Kids I liked at first and then I just grew not to so much like it. Not like I said, I don't hate it, but it doesn't grab me as much. Mm. But this song, I just kind of heard it, it's like, it's unusual. And then it just fucking grew on me. I think this song is epic. I just love the way they ended with this track. It gets a wah-wah section in the beginning, kind of like a Shaft meets Starsky and Hutch thing. We're back to the 1970s cop chaser thing, and I'm all about that. Especially when you get the 16th notes in the hi-hat, it's like... That's total fucking disco cop show stuff. And what I think is really cool is like there's like an echo effect of the guitars. And that compounded with like the synths in the background. This is going to sound a little bit weird and maybe a bit of a stretch, but like some of the guitar stuff almost reminds me a little bit of Radiohead. Hmm. Like I can see this like being like hinting, you know, 20 some odd years down the or 30 some odd years down the line. There's going to be this brute group of pasty faced English dudes with like weird guitar textures. Hmm. And it's not to say that, like, who knows, I don't think um, Ed O'Brien and Johnny fucking green with like or like total dan fans or maybe they are i don't know but i like the interaction between the keyboards and guitars for that 
that's one of the reasons I like it. This is a song where I really noticed that Becker is really a decent bassist, and that made me want to go back and like check out the rest of his bass work on the album. But um, he's got some really good stuff going on here, especially during that like Rockford Files kind of keyboard solo. That and speaking of the Rockford Files <laughs> section, I gotta say that's a weird ass fucking key modulations. I, they're, they're going all over the place with there, and yeah. I think that's just another uh, indication of like kind of how complex they were with their songwriting. Um, at the four minute eighteen second mark, you got a really cool subdued guitar solo in the left hand channel, and they get this kind of classy fade out. So pff, this song is fucking nutty good. Yeah. Well, this is different. There's synthesizer parts that sound very much like 70s dated sci-fi Casio keyboard timbres grafted onto a jazz tune with snazzy jazz drums, jazzy bass, and jazz guitar with an added funk-style guitar with wah-wah all over it. The production on this one also seems to me to be a little off. The reverb is really pronounced, and some of the instrumentation is pushed to the background, and I wonder if that was a deliberate artistic decision due to the song's subject. Wait, this is Steely Dan. Of course they did it on purpose. (laughs) So yeah, nuclear war happened, and apparently the narrator is all alone, calling out on a ham radio, hoping to find other survivors. Ray P. gave you all the details about the lyrics. I do like it. I'm not saying I don't like this track. But the sheer oddness of it in context of the rest of the album makes it Aaron's Stinky Stinker. It's more, the keyboards in the synths take more of a prominent role than the guitar. Yeah. In yeah. this one, too. Oh, yeah, no, it's true. The guitar just kind of accents and it, it plays along really interesting, but that's, that's what really gets me on this song is that it just, it's a complete out of left field. Like uh, everything's been this blazing guitar and then where, where the hell did it go? So Yeah. Now that the track by track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which lies among the ruins of Santa Fe. Professor Permi, give us your final thoughts on Countdown to Ecstasy. Oh, well, Steely Dan. I mean, just the band's name kind of tells you that this band is quirky. It really isn't for everyone, and I understand that. But every every time I've met a musician and I've asked them, you know, what do you think of Steely Dan? It's either I hate them or they gush over like, oh, my God, I love that band. And there's no bad song that they've ever done. So there's no in-between with them. I know this album was written for them to play live. This was They only did like two albums that they were still a touring band on. And um, – most, if not all, of the songs were played live. There's a great FM broadcast bootleg out there from the record plant in 1974 floating around out on YouTube. Uh, the tempo of the songs are a little bit fast, you know, but, you know, hello, cocaine. That's what <laughs> they were doing. But it's still a great recording. The level of musicianship on this album is astounding to me. The fact that this band knew they could pull it off live is just really super ballsy, too. Doesn't have any hits per se. Maybe My Old School is really the only one that I can remember getting any airplay, but nothing excessive. And Showbiz Kids, which was their first single, should have been much bigger, but having a clear fuck in the lyrics pretty much shot that one in the foot straight out of the gate back in 73. The actual title of the album, Jeff Baxter explained that Steely Dan had been planning to write a whole mini opera about a Marine, and the last thing was how he was going to go on leave and going to write a song called Countdown to Ecstasy because he finally got laid. <laughs> but they, they figured they'd be in trouble with the State Department, so they didn't do it. Um, which just seems just like this band is just like, 
in a way, the more I learn about this band, the more I learn, I think it's like Breaking Bad. They were really smart and really stupid in a lot of other ways. And they just had a lot of dumb luck, which incidentally, Vince Gillian is a huge Steely Dan fan. <laughs> <from what I've laughs> wow, cool. The title of the album and the album tracks and their themes have a very loose thread that kind of follows along. Bodhisattva, Striving for Enlightenment or Ecstasy. Razor Boy, misspent pursuits of a material things that result in a loss that you thought would make you happy. The Boston Rag, escaping your present reality through drug abuse because you're trapped by your own age. Gold Teeth, grifting your way to a good life through lies and manipulation. Showbiz Kids, the class envy, and gambling against a system that is rigged against you to obtain, quote, the good life. My Old School, the way that they felt about the hollow premise of a good life through education. Pearl of the Quarter, the unattainable love of a prostitute, because, you know, that's never going to really work out. <laughs> King of the World, surviving nuclear war and wondering, you know, what am I doing? I'm not really living. I'm only living to survive. The common thread is really thin and it's wholly unintended because the band said there wasn't one. But I saw so many people online thought that there was some thread there. And I kind of see it, but like I said, it's thin. I give this album a five all day. The worst song still has the most catchy lyrical hook on par with Hey Mickey to me. <laughs> That's all I could say. I love this band. And I know I broke my own rule about the Stones being the only ones that were going to get fives. But, I mean, this is Steely Dan. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> Razy. Well, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, I had never sat down and listened to one of their albums in their entirety. I knew the, the classic rock staples. But that said... I am now a Dan fan, and I would probably, as soon as I wrap up, I might even just do it layered on top of this David Bowie kick I've been on for like the last month, just like check out some Steely Dan on top of the Bowie stuff, because if this is any indication, and which Aaron assures me that it is, of the uh, quality of the albums, then I, I don't think I'm going to be disappointed. So uh, I'm going to give this a four, and I'm gonna, I think you had great songwriting and solid musicianship. And it was came out in 1973, and guess what else came out in 1973? Me! <laughs> so we have that going for us. And uh, yeah, for it is. All I can right. see it becoming a desert island down, a disc down, down the road. Steely Dan is often thought of as a two-person band, and it's true that Donald Fagan and Walter Becker are the core members who wrote the material and appeared on every album. But in the beginning, it was an actual band with six members. Fagan and Becker met at Baird College, began writing songs together, and started playing in local groups, including one with Chevy Chase, the comedian actor on drums. After Fagan graduated in 1969, the two moved to Brooklyn and sold some of their songs to the Brill Building. With minor success, Barbara Streisand recorded one of their songs. But then they were hired in 1971 as staff songwriters by ABC Records and their staff producer, Gary Katz, and they relocated to Los Angeles. Katz quickly realized that Fagan and Becker's songs were too complex for the ABC artist roster, and he encouraged the duo to form their own band. They recruited Denny Diaz, Jeff Skunk Baxter, Jim Hodder, and singer David Palmer as sort of a relief vocalist due to Fagan's stage fright. Fans of Beat Generation literature, Fagan and Becker named the band Steely Dan after a revolutionary steam-powered dildo in William S. Burroughs' novel Naked Lunch. And in 1972, they put out their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. It did well, charting two hit singles, and Steely Dan toured the record with David Palmer handling most of the vocal duties. Becker and Gary Katz felt that Fagan's interpretations of the songs were better, and Palmer was kind of phased out as Steely Dan recorded its second album. 
When Countdown to Ecstasy was released, it garnered critical praise, though it wasn't as commercially successful as the first record, and Fagan and Becker were unhappy with it as they felt it had been recorded too hastily while on tour. For me, this is not my personal favorite Steely Dan album, but it's still a damn fine record. It continues the band's signature catchy jazz pop rock and shows a musical progression from their debut. In my opinion, you can't go wrong with the first seven Steely Dan albums. They are all of an absurdly high quality in sonics and songwriting, and I love every one of them. I give Countdown to Ecstasy a four, and I'll put this band up there with any pop group from the 70s you want to name. Give them a try. You might just find yourself becoming a Dan fan, too. I did. (laughs) And from the R4 Summit, William Reese Perkins, Victor Stanley Feldman, Raymond Matthews Brown, Jim Hodder, and Walter Carl Becker. Rest in peace. Now we got to thank Professor Ray Permy for coming on the podcast and dropping the knowledge on us. Ray P., thanks again, man. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I love it. It's always a a pleasure, man. Always. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way, and yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Give us a shout and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us, and we'd also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Russell Conkle. I don't think he had any other Steely Dan albums, so they kind of dropped off my radar as... Oh, you fuck. (laughs) (laughs) What is the meaning of this? (laughs) What do I tell you? What happened? I got a notification of some shit from ESPN. Uh Man, I don't even know where I was now. (laughs) How dare you do that to me? Good time to take a sip. Yeah, take a sip. Silent mode. You were looking... Yeah, and I silenced my phone. That helped. Okay. All right, so where was I? <laughs> you, you pop. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> I feel like I just shitting somebody's cornflakes on that one. <laughs> it's a couple people's cornflakes. <laughs> so, you, did you hear this album, the whole thing, before? Or was this your first no, time listening to it? This is my first time listening through it. I'll be listening to it for a lot longer. I can tell you that off the bat. Among their other things, for sure. Um, but yeah, no, this up until last week, I'd never heard this album at wow. all. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Z. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Z. 
you dick. <laughs> Showbiz kids is his rump. <laughs> and I want to slap him. Alright, here we go. Yes. Here are some more parents who ought to be beaten with heavy clubs and left bleeding in the moonlight. <laughs> these are the ones who carry their babies around in these backpacks or front packs or slings or whatever these devices are called that are apparently designed to leave the parents' hands free to sort through high-end merchandise and reach for their platinum credit cards. Because it's always these upscale, yuppie-looking, Greenpeace, environmentally conscious assholes who have mine, you know? I say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Natural Fibers. I say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Natural Fibers. It's not camping equipment, it's a baby. Touch the little prick now and then. He'll thank you for it someday. These are the same people who sort their garbage, jog with their dogs, and listen to Steely Dan. You know? You just like to take them out deep into the forest and disembowel them with a wooden cooking spoon. 